All right, welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we're talking live at the Milwaukee Muskie Expo. We'll go around the horn here in a second because we have, let's see here, nobody. Oh, no, Jeff, you were at a roundtable in Wausau. And Gus, you were too last year. So Clayton, you've never been in a roundtable. Jordan, you've never been in a roundtable. Uh, we have a couple people in attendance. And we also hope that if you're watching us on Facebook Live, that you have a couple questions as well. And we're going to prioritize people in attendance first, seeing as though they went through and decided they'd come out and visit us. It's, you know, fun. It's a fun time to be out here live doing a podcast. Brad, what's your impression of day one in Milwaukee? It's been solid. It really has. There's been a ton of people here. It's been fun visiting. And hey, we're making some sales. So love it. All right. So Clayton, you're going to be the first one to talk. Just introduce yourself. Let people know, you know, what you're up to, what your thing is, you know, if you're guiding, what you're doing. And so they kind of get an idea who we got on this this roundtable tonight. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. My name is Clayton Spies. I'm from Eagle River, Wisconsin. I guide part-time, going full-time. I'm not quite there yet, but been doing it for a couple of years. I fished the PMTT, the trail, have been for a few years with Nick Ambrose. And we took third place in a championship last year, but try and be competitive and help run the Eagle River Monday Night Muskie League, which... Thank you, Jeff, and Team Rhino has been a great sponsor of ours for many years and is going to continue this year as well. Sweet. Thanks for having me on, Jeff and Brad. My name is Gus Manti. I run Suggs Fishing Guide Service out of uh, Eagle River, Wisconsin as well, right near Clayton. I also partake in the Monday Night League, and my brother and I fished the PMTT last year and, and will this year again as well. And Gus forgets to mention that he won Top Gun Team of the Year last year on the PMTT. I'm Jordan Stokes with Stoked on Fishing. Do a lot of guiding in the metro, Lake Minnetonka and surrounding area, and then Leech Lake, Cass Lake, and all the lakes connected up there. And do a lot of, you know, midday, midweek stuff, multi-species stuff on Minnetonka as well. Hey, my name is Jeff Hansen. I'm a full-time guide in the Madison chain. I've been a guide for, this will be my 28th year of guiding, 90% muskies 10 percent pike so spend spend a lot of days on the water all right let's start off with one user or listener question one that somebody showed up here are you willing to come on and talk about some questions here all right let her have it okay guys we'll start out with something that might help a lot of newer listeners or just anybody for handling fish what would be some tips you would give for newer guys to understand how strong muskies are how to handle them properly so that we don't drop them in the bottom of the boat and are you cool with using things like gloves for touching the fish what are things you would do or things you would avoid that's a great question so i do use gloves in my boat i just started using some fishing gloves ultra thin with fingertipless and that really seems to help with being able to keep your grip on the fish when you're reaching up underneath inside their gill plate and trying to hang on and they go to take off. So it protects your hands. I did not get hardly any gill rake this last year handling more fish than I've ever handled in my life. And the gloves held up for about a year, but they were 100% worth it. Plus they protect your hands from the sun. And I guess, you know, just obviously try and handle them with care. And if they start freaking out, usually you can tell when a fish is going to take off, it starts to tense up. And just be ready, and if need be, get it over the side of the boat or close to the edge so you can let it go if it needs to go. Don't try and keep it in the boat and you know dro potentially drop it. And if you are having a hard time getting it to the edge, don't be afraid to bear hug it. You know, and just obviously protection of the fish. Be as fast as you can with it. All right, let's. Uh, you guys can try to talk a little bit louder so that we can pick it up on here. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Maybe say something. Yeah, we'll take it up. The, mic, the mics aren't set up. Not, not to pick up here. We just got to do with the external mic on the phone. And Gus, try to speak up a little bit. Okay, sounds good. I definitely second everything that, that Clayton just said. Maybe trying to add on some things, I'd say, because they're really powerful fish, if you get the, you know, the fish hung up pretty high in the net right away, I'd have some release tools and and, you know, your pliers, your hook cutters for sure at handy because you want to get the, the head of the fish back in the bag as quick as possible. You know, you want them to rest. That That's why we have the giant, you know, musky nuts in general. 
And, and then one thing, I'll just add some quick things, you know, wet the butt bump board. And then I usually have everybody kneel down when they take a picture of a muskie, you know, when you're standing up and you do have a fish tense up and you're not able to get it overboard, that's when things can go south. So if you're a little lower to the ground, you know, nothing too bad can happen. So that's what I would recommend doing. Yeah. You guys hit it on the head. I use golf gloves just because I golf all the time. So I got leftover gloves. So I'll use those. As far as like fish for me, like when the, I'm going to just get into the hot water situation, when I catch fish and I'm in a hot water situation, since you guys hit on the other things, I like to, when I release that fish, I like to push that fish's head as far down into the water. And I reach my arms down in the water as far as I can. I feel like that top foot to a foot and a half is going to warm up way faster than two to three, four feet down. My, your live scope transducers are reading, you know, multiple degrees different. So I like to get their heads down and it, they seem like they kick off a lot faster that way as well. Yeah. You guys all made really, really good, good points on all that. Gus probably made the biggest one that I really encourage in my boat is I always kept people stay low with the fish. Because if you're standing, especially if you're a six foot tall person and you're holding a musky way up high, if it drops and hits its head, that's like you falling off a six foot stepladder and hitting your head. So I always try and encourage my customers to either sit or stay kneel down low, keep that fish low. So if it does happen to get out of their hands, then it's not taking that, that big a fall. And if I have new people that haven't held one before, I'll always ask them. I said, this is really, really important. If you haven't held one before, they, they, they want me to hold it, especially I'll help them hold it, or I'll at least have my hand in a glove and hold on to the fish's head. Because a lot of people are nervous that have never held one, especially if they get one over 45 inches long. People aren't used to handling that kind of big fish. So I'll kind of encourage people to let me help them hold it, just because to ask them, that's really important. Tell them it's really important that you don't drop this fish for the sake of the fish. So, but yeah, the biggest thing is to stay low during your pictures so that the fish can't drop and then the gloves i use are the ones that i uh, got from team rhino from jeff just to help keep your hands from being cut up and that's about all i got everybody else made really good points and everything else all right we want to slide the mic over you got a question for us yeah all right so i fish smaller river in northern wisconsin that gets a lot of musky pressure and a lot of bass pressure everybody seems to fish just up and down the shorelines I mean, being a river and smaller, it's only a couple miles from the first dam to the second dam. How do you differentiate yourself behind all that pressure? I mean, I know there's there's a, quite a few fish in there and there's big fish. So just what do you do differently other than casts in one cast or two casts offshore line? Well, Jeff, I don't know. You're probably not going to offer much for rivers, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, river-wise, I... I don't fish rivers. I mean, there is the Har River that runs through the Madison chain, which is only really fishable in May. And I do fish that, but pressured water wise is, is one of the main things I do is go smaller on a lot of baits. I definitely use a lot smaller stuff the last few years and, and move it along faster. And I tend to get more reaction strikes out of it. But if you're seeing somebody go along and pounding a shoreline or some with trees or the weeds, don't be afraid to fish out a little bit further or fish some of the stuff that other guys aren't fishing. Like if I see guys fishing the weed line down in front of me, I won't follow those boats. I'll either go maybe inside of where they're fishing if possible, but if not, definitely out on the first break, if not the second break. And then I'm targeting fish that I've already seen a bunch of baits. So I don't do a ton of uh, musky fishing on rivers, but I have. But I will say the one time that we did really well on rivers, and this comes back to walleye fishing, is if they're all throwing up on that reef, sometimes with walleyes on rivers, they're facing out towards the river channel and they're trying to catch stuff coming up shallow or getting swept down the river. So it's sitting on top of the structure up a ways and throwing out into the deep and working it up the break can work as well. If everybody's throwing towards shore, switch, maybe throw the other way. Because there's definitely fish in rivers that won't leave the river channel basically their whole life. They'll go up and down the rivers. They'll stay in the river channels. They don't pull up on shore. Now, maybe they do at times, but I think there's a big chunk of river fish that don't get fished that are out deep in heavy currents, and people just aren't out there doing it. Jigging, trolling, covering water, I think is huge on rivers. Yeah, I don't I don't fish really rivers much at all. Are you, are you talking like a river that's like a couple cast lengths across, or is it pretty... Okay. Okay. Man, this might be out of my wheelhouse, but I'd say, I guess if you're not wanting to follow people, as Jeff was saying, I, I would not do that. If you, if you have side image, I would look for any just sort of structure in the middle of that river. Cause at least from what I understand, and I've trout fished before, just any little boulder, any little break on the bottom that's stopping that current, a fish is going to use to hide behind usually. So, you know, any little thing I've, I've, just the little river fishing I've I've done 
they can be in some really weird places. You know, they're not like a typical lake fish on a weed line. So I wouldn't be afraid to really change up your lures. I, you know, you could probably try some baits that are completely different, like jigs. I know people do well on jigs and rivers, a lot of dragon bottom because a lot of fish will feed on the bottom. So uh, that's, that's probably what I got to add on that. All right. So yeah, I got to agree with, you know, all those answers. And the only thing I would say coming from maybe a tournament aspect and we're hopping in line all the time and fishing the same stuff. Don't be discouraged. Number one about fishing behind people, try something different. Or even if you're using the same thing, a lot of times it could be timing. People will go buy fish, cast at them and they won't get them because they're not ready to eat. I'd fish right behind somebody else and catch something. Another thing you could do is maybe really pick apart something that looked good that maybe somebody took a few casts at, hit it from some different angles, try different speeds, you know, vary speeds on the same fish or same spot while you're there. Like just be a little bit more in depth that maybe the person in front of you wasn't and maybe you'll get that fish to eat. All right, moving along. You got another question or do you want to jump over here? You got one more question, right? All right. Yeah. Keep them, keep firing them. Sure. So here's the scenario we may all want to find ourselves in. You get her to the net and she's 64 by 33 or 30. I mean, what, whatever 70 plus pounds, right? You guys are all smiling and giggling. Me too. Thinking about that fish every day. I don't even know if she exists for sure, but let's say she's in your net. Obviously we all pack practice catch and release we are going to continue to catch practice catch and release any fish that's 35 to 57 probably going to go back but let's say it's that fish and you want something better than thinking that louis spray legitimately caught the world record or any one of the other guys who put weights in fish to potentially gain a record would you consider trying to keep that fish alive to get an official weight and measure on it to have a good, honest Gus is laughing. That's good. <laughs> I mean, he's really thinking about it. Get a good, honest, legit world record by a guy who actually caught it. Would you consider trying to keep that fish alive as long as you could to get an official weight and measure risking that it might die? We all try to avoid that. You hook them in the tongue, not going to make it. You know she's just not going to make it because you've caught like 400 muskies or more. Like Jeff has probably caught thousands. You know if it's not going to make it. But let's say it's healthy and it's in the net. Would you consider keeping the fish alive to get an official weight and measure, knowing you could risk killing that fish? But also, would you find value in knowing that you could get genetic data and an age off of that fish, potentially think about where that fish was born, spawned, all of the things that would lead up to a fish being that size. And it, yeah, you guys are all smiling. I'd really like to know your thoughts on what you would do with that fish because I dream about the fish every night and every day, all day, and have since I was about seven years old in Hayward, Wisconsin, when I saw. Louis fish and then went to a restaurant there was a 70 pounder that wasn't somehow legitimized art lawton's fish i mean we all know about these guys so we we think about this we dream about this but i don't want to be the guy that went to lock sewell and caught a 70 pounder and wasn't prepared to get a legit weight and measurement on this fish what would you guys do so I guess to summarize the question is, how important is it for you guys to get a legit world record? Le legit would be like air quotes, right? Because we actually have a world record now. And what would you do with it? Like, I mean, is it something that you guys think about? Because I can answer it myself. That record isn't that important to me. It never has been that important to me. And there's zero chance that I would try to kill that fish to get a legit world record. Because in my opinion, I don't have anything to gain from having a legit world record personally and i i don't have any interest in it that's just my personal opinion i have zero interest in a legit world record all right <clears throat> wow that really makes a person think 
because I've never really thought about it before. And I would have to say right now, I mean, in the heat of the moment, who knows where my mind's going to go. If I could keep the fish alive and not have to transport it and get somebody out to verify it, I would probably maybe try and get it verified in a timely manner. If it was longer than what I thought, maybe that fish would be good in the net because the net's big enough to hold it. It depends on the water temp. Like there's a lot of variables. Honestly, if I could keep the fish alive and make sure it swims away, that would be more important than a world record to me because I guess I'm kind of like Jeff. Like I don't really care, I guess, about my name or whatever. I mean, I know it would be one to me personally and all my friends and everybody that knows me would believe me. That's all that really matters to me. I don't care, I guess, about what other people would say. So there's my two cents on it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's 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 a tough one. I mean, I think I was just smiling over here because I honestly think I've never thought of it at all. Never at all. So I'm I'm in the same boat with, with Jeff and Clayton. I don't I don't think it would matter to me at all getting like the record. If there, if I was looking at a specimen that big and than that one, I just I legitimately wouldn't know what to do right away. I I mean, I was lucky enough to be raised to pretty much practice a lot of catch and release growing up. I didn't really do much for keeping panfish and stuff. So I would probably just immediately go to get some picks and let her go. I mean, then there's obviously the rabbit hole. If, if you can't revive it, then I, then there'd be some lot of mixed feelings. I wouldn't, I would not know what to do because the last thing I'd want to do is just let go a fish that I know just died. I don't know. That's, that's a really tough one. I'd, <laughs> I would try to release it for sure. So, you know, you think what you just said there, Gus, I think no matter what you do, you're going to get chastised, right? Because if you think about our sport, everybody wants to deal with catch and release, right? So maybe the fish is in trouble and you don't think it's going to make it. So you keep it. Somebody's going to hammer you for that, right? It's a tough, tough question to answer. I think here you go, Jordan. Thank you. Yeah, this, so we've never ever talked about or thought about the world record, but we have talked about what do we do if we ever catch one that's 57, 58, what do we do with that? Do we even girth it or measure it or anything? And we had that conversation on Malax one day and we both, my fishing partner and I came to the same conclusion that it doesn't matter. Like we love fishing so much that it's never even like, who cares? You know, it's cool, but we want to catch the next one. We want to catch the next bigger one. If I caught one that big, I'd I don't know. Honestly, I, I wouldn't even know what to say. If I would, I would probably try to get it back as fast as possible. That's just the way I want that fish to live. I want maybe somebody else to catch it a year later and it's an inch bigger. And then they got a story to tell you where they caught it near where you caught it. Like that's, I think that's cool hearing about a 55 caught and then that guy caught it down the way and they share the story about it. A 70 incher, that's insane. But I would definitely try to get it back, girth it as quick as possible. Yeah, I pretty much agree with Jeff Whitman, what he said. I mean, me, where I fish on the Madison chain, it ain't ever going to happen anyway. So, I mean, there's very few 50 inches caught, let alone a 70-pounder, which would never happen there. I mean, the only chance I would ever have of that, I spend a week up on Eagle Lake at North Shore Lodge every year. Eagle Lake, it could happen there, but I buy a conservation license when I go. Even if I caught it there, I'd let it go. I mean, I, I could never see myself ever killing one. I don't care how big it is. I mean, I've caught and released thousands of them and I will, I don't care how big it is. I, I personally, myself couldn't bring myself to keep one. I don't care how big it is. Well, put you on the spot. Musky fishing can be really complicated, right? Look at all the baits. You know, I come in here and it's kind of like sensory overload. How do you simplify it? If you had to dumb it down to like, I could take one Plano box or like three baits what would they be just to make things? I mean, like as I look at all these baits here and they're all tools, right? Every, everyone's a wrench for a different size nut. What would you pick for like three, three different baits to get you by to make things simple? Oh, that's a hard one. Three. I'm used to having 300 in my boat at a time, at least for sure. One really overlooked one that a lot of people don't use, which is really good on pressured waters for me is the uh, Big Joe from Musk Innovations. That's one that few guys still use. I mean, I've talked about them for many, many years in seminars. That's a bait that a, a lot of fish don't see. Definitely a crankbait in there. 
a diesel from Muskie Train, either, I guess, either a shallow or a deep diver. I mean, the last three years, the biggest fish in my boat's been on a diesel. I mean, it's a four-inch bait, but I put a lot of 50 inches in the boat on that bait. Then definitely some some kind of bucktail. I'm leaning towards something small, either like a double eight spanky, or I guess if they're going on single blades, the rabbit rabbit squirrel is a really really good one. Just small bucktails. I've got a lot of a lot of big fish on small bucktails, so I guess those those would be the, the three that I would definitely not leave the dock without. Definitely second to crankbait deal because you can do a lot of things with a crankbait. So I'm going to take a shallow invader, uh, probably a, a Magnum Bulldog. And then a small bucktail. Those would be my, because I can cover every depth with those. I can troll, I can cast, I can go up shallow. I can open water fish with those baits. So that's what I would choose. Oh man, that's a tough one. Because as we all all do, we carry a lot of baits. I sometimes fire through a bunch of baits, but honestly, more times than not, I sometimes just stick with a single bait for quite a while. If I had to break it down to three for myself, I would I would do for sure some sort of dive rise, a rubber bait and a bucktail. And for rubber, you know, maybe a bulldog, but I'd probably go tube just because of the versatility. Blade on the back, no blade on the back, weight here, weight there. You can really move that bait around and cover the deep, mid and shallow. I love crankbaits, but I'll just, I'll just, I'll just say a suic probably go dive and rise some sort of pull pause bait like that. And then the, for the bucktail is, is necessary. I think if you're going to only have three, just because of how great they are at catching fish in general and the hooking percentage mainly. You know, some people could maybe sub that for a top water, but the bucktail, just use whatever you're most confident with. I mean, I could name off 12 of them and just, you know, pick one. Whatever's your favorite, pretty much. That's what I roll with. All right. My answer is going to be similar to Gus's. We fish together quite a bit and share a lot of the same style of fishing. And I'm not sponsored by any of these guys, but I would say I would start with a red October tube, seven and a half inch, probably with a little blade on the back, black, black. And you can use that in so many different ways, you know, take the tube, you know, the blade off or whatever. When the fishing's really good and the bite's good, throw a bucktail. Probably right now, this day and age, some sort of stagger, small stagger, seven, eight, eight, nine type of blade with tinsel ultra flash you can run it fast you can run it slow and your highest hooking percentage bait so go with that and then on days with cold fronts i like to go to a dive rise and i would say probably like a smaller navin probably and you can work that really slow it has good belly roll we've had a lot of success with those last couple of years and you can twitch them fast too when the bite starts to heat up so i like to use a lot of natural colors so I'd say dive rise would be like a walleye or gold or something. Bucktail, I like a little brighter, even white or some sort of combination of like a Cisco has always been great for me. Musky mayhem tackle for sure. But that's where I would be. I'm surprised nobody said they want to twitch a little wish wishmaster over shallow weeds. I heard the going rates like $3,000 for those things, right? So that's where I would go. I would start with that to get those $3,000 high you know, high dollar baits. That's where it's at. Quite honestly, I don't, I, did anybody say a bulldog? I don't, did, you said a bulldog. All right. I must've been, I must've been paying attention to the phone for a second. A bulldog has to be like one of the baits that everybody should have. I feel like it's a bulldog, a suic, and then a bucktail, you know, those are the, those are the ones that I feel like everybody should have in to cover most things. And honestly, it's so hard to get away from rubber baits. I just, they're, they're effective all the time. They're effective early, late, they're effective in the summertime. You can rip them fast. You can work them slow. You know, Brad, I know you can jump in here. You're going to talk about bucktails. I mean, those things can be used all season too. It's just uh, different tools. And, you know, also it's just, some of it's just about confidence. What was the last thing you caught a muskie on? I'd start there too. Yeah, definitely. I think all of us kind of have game plans on what we're going to use on a daily basis, right? And usually that starts out by going to what you caught on last, right? So you start there maybe, but at the end of the day, I think we're all programmed. We need to throw rubber and wood in October and November. You can still catch on blades. I've done it numerous times, right? You can start your season trolling, say, crankbaits in the open water. But you can go throw blades. You can throw tubes. You can do a lot of different things. And I think we get hung up in what people always talk about in seminars or whatever it might be. And so 
on the right day, you can throw this, which nobody would throw a pounder on openers. That's what I always hear. Everybody wants to downsize. I'm the guy throwing a pounder. And the reason I do that is because I cut against the grain. And that's a big part of it too. I think standing out away from the rest of the crowd, we talked about that earlier. I definitely think that is a key that a lot of people forget about. There's a question on here. Let me see what it is. I think it's some of the Southern reservoirs, right? Any tips for Southern? Oh boy, we got deer hair or synthetic for baits too. All right, let's go with Southern lakes. Okay. Where you got any tips for, you know, pressured Southern lakes. So this one says Pewaukee, Okachi, but Breton, you can weigh in on the Madison chain because it's similar. You know, you're dealing with similar pressure issues out there. So why don't you swing that all the way around to Jeff? We'll let him start first. I don't know if Clayton, Gus, or Jordan have a whole lot of imp- impact on that stuff. So we'll the question is just asking about fishing pressured southern waters. Yeah, this one specifically says Pewaukee and Okachi, but I would imagine that the tactics e- e- Yeah, apply. both Okachi and Pewaukee fish very similar to Madison, almost identical, kind of the same colored water and the same baits that I catch fish on in Pewaukee. I got a ton of people that I guide that fish Pewaukee and o- Okachi. And they the same stuff that they fish with me on those lakes works for them on those other lakes. The, the biggest thing is just getting away from people and using different baits. Like if you see somebody in front of you throwing a bucktail, throw something else or a different size or smaller, then definitely don't get, I don't get in lines behind anybody. I'll either fish, if somebody's fishing a weed edge, I'll either fish the inside edge or fish the outside edge, fish the brakes. And a lot of times, uh, boy, the last few years, going smaller for me has made a huge difference. I've caught a lot of really, really big fish on small baits. So don't be afraid to use that small stuff on pressured water. So everybody and their mother's throwing regular size or mag bulldogs, the the bigger medusas, everybody's throwing those. I'll go behind those boats and throw a regular bulldog and and catch just as many fish and 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 some bigger fish. So don't be afraid to go small on 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 some of those baits. Especially if you're getting a lot of follows, if you're throwing nines or tens on a bucktail, go back through with either like a rabbit squirrel or a double eight to something something smaller will will trigger those fish to bite. And just just avoid crowds of doing do different stuff that other people aren't doing. Okay, so I'm down on Minnetonka, so I'm guessing that's technically what he's asking about, southern pressured waters. So for me, I go about different on different parts of the season. As the season wears on, I just hit more and more spots a day, and I tell myself two spots every day I've never fished. So on Minnetonka, even on an eight-hour guide trip, I'm trying to hit 30 to 40 spots because I'll never get there. It just seemed, well, I shouldn't say never, but but you'll never, by the time you get to that 10th, 11th, 12th spot, a lot of times you start moving fish or something starts happening. But it's fishing in between the spots or that barren shoreline I find a lot that you would look at and go, oh, there might, there's nothing there. It's just a barren shoreline, but it's next to that point that everybody fishes. So those fish are going to slide, but just not very far, but they're going to move off that structure. And the more you keep pushing them, I've watched it where I've fished these fish down, 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 and then I just lose them. Like they just disappear. I think you beat up on them, beat up on them, beat up on them. So I fish extremely high traffic boat areas during the week. And that's kind of the the ticket is you get out during the week and you're fishing in the mornings when on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's no, or there's people out galore during the week. There's not one boat on the lake. Five o'clock hits. There's 900 yachts on the lake. You can't even maneuver to get to where you're going, but those high traffic areas, nobody fishes. It sucks to fish, but the fish go in there and they use it. And so, and then big cuts and weeds. So big cuts in any kind of cabbage on high pressured stuff that's in the cabbage. So you might have a big cabbage bed that's a quarter mile long but there might be a cut right in the middle of it. Nobody's fishing that cut in the middle. So look for that in off the wall spots in the middle of weed beds. All right. Hold up, hold up one second, Gus. I want to go that way so he can get on with his day. Cause literally Mike Cap, who is like one of the masters of pressured water happens to be walking by or standing over here, drinking a beer and Brad's booth. Me into it. Yeah. And so we're like, Hey, we <laughs> might as well talk. If we're going to talk pressured waters for Southern Okachi, Pewaukee lakes, you would know more than anybody else. What's the what's the secret to crack the code on pressured waters? What time of year are we talking? Throw me a question. Well, let's, let's so we'll go. I'll give you two. We're gonna start the season off early season. They for sure get a lot of pressure since nothing else is open. Yeah. What's the ticket there? Early season. A lot of pressure. The whole key with going early season is you're basically looking for spawning areas and the fish that are relating to it. Now you can't go in there and throw all kinds of different hardware at them. It's, you got to tease them is what it is. So, I mean, 
jerk baits, slammers, stuff like that, where you actually trigger the reaction, is how you could catch those fish. In May, it's the best time to go look, search, find them, but to actually catch them, that's a whole other thing. I tell people all the time, you want to learn to lake, go out in May. If you want to catch them, let's start in June. So the key with Pewaukee is basically smaller baits and very erratic because you could trigger them, but you're not going to get the big females. Big females are lazy and they like glide baits. And I'll throw any slow moving glide bait. If you think you wait too long of a pause between, wait a little longer. It's amazing what they do. I mean, they just want an easy meal, the females, the big ones. But the males, twitch, 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 stop, and then trigger them. That's the key to get it. You know, too many people are rolling bucktails and trying different stuff and, and the usual stuff. The key in spring is just be erratic. You know, not crazy erratic, but erratic. All right, Mike, then let's move into July, because July, I think, can be a trolling time down here in southern Wisconsin. What's the key to to pressured trolling fish? I guess the key is the right bait, the right color, the right speed. Put all those combinations together. It's not easy, you know, because you look ahead of you and there's two boats ahead of you. And you look behind you and there's three boats behind you. Everyone's kind of running the same stuff. So it's really presentation and water temperature and everything else. But if you're looking at catching fish late June, Probably not an easier way to catch them. They just, they're, they're eating and the water's warming up. So basically what you do is start on the outside weed edge and work anywhere close to deep water. Any deep water points, any deep water flats that drop off, anywhere where the fish can be close to deep water is where they're going to start going. So then you look for bait fish. Find the bait fish. The bait fish will give you the key to what baits to use. So if it's a, a perch bait or a, a crappie bait or a bluegill bait, it's kind of all different, you know? So you kind of got to roll with it. Pewaukee's got so many walleyes in it now that it's actually changing. And walleye is one of the best colors you can get now. But walleyes for tomorrow, we're part of that. We put 5.7 million walleyes in Pewaukee Lake this spring. So it's only get better and better and better. All right, well, let's not talk about that. Muskies don't eat walleyes, Mike. They don't. No, they don't eat walleyes. <laughs> but it has changed. I mean, Pewaukee Lake in the last 10 years has definitely changed. It's a better, deeper water bite. It's not the shallow bite they used to be. Basically, work the outer edges of the weeds and anywhere closer to deep water, and they're going to be stacked up in there. Follow your electronics, you know. Let's, what you see. Let's talk about speed for a second, trolling-wise. What are we What are we looking at for speeds? Early in the season, start out two, two and a half, just for your baits working good. And then once you start getting to that transition where they're moving out, it's kind of a catch-me-if-you-can type thing. So I'll crank it up to three, three and a half. I generally don't go much over four, but definitely crank it up. Because if you don't, they're going to look at it and they're going to leave. I mean, you got to remember, these fish are seeing hundreds of baits a week. Right. So got to adapt, you know, catch me if you can. And that'll trigger them. It will. It's just some baits are better than others. All right. Well, let's swing it this way. We'll go to Clayton and Gus. And they're talking, we're not, you know, the question was on early sea or uh, pressured Southern waters, but let's talk about you guys. Cause you guys fish the Eagle river chain a lot. And that would be, I mean, that's got a lot of pressure there too. Yeah, it does for me. I guess when it's really pressured and we're talking about more like pleasure boater pressure and and maybe fishing pressure too, maybe time of the day would be something to look at. And if you can go out, let's say about dinner time, the lakes really start clearing off at about dinner time. And honestly, I'll head right to where the most boat traffic was that day. And chances are them fish are going to move right in there where all that bait is from those boats driving through. And the muskies will follow them right behind them. And we have some of our best luck, like four, five, six o'clock even, sometimes even better than right before dark, just because all that churned up water and all that bait in there, we can find the muskies in that stuff and they're hungry and ready to eat as soon as those boats leave. So if you're free to fish whenever, I would say try time of day, at late afternoon, evening, into the night, even if you're comfortable or early morning before everyone gets out. That's another thing that would help a lot too. Yeah, Clayton and I fished the you know Eagle River chain a bunch, and that gets a bunch of pressure, mainly, like you said, boat pressure. And 
And I'd say for sure going after after hours of hitting those spots, but I, we have had a little bit of success fishing in some high-pressured boat traffic areas during the boat traffic. I do know one story. My brother and I were out fishing. We had some dude cut us off between zero feet, and we were in at about six and he cut us off going about 10 miles an hour plowing waves and yelled at us that there's no fish there. And my brother caught a fish the next cast in four feet of water and his prop wash. So they use it for sure. Not to go too much back on that, but I would say with the Eagle River chain, since it's a body of water, any body of water that you know, like the back of your hand. This past year, I noticed with pressure that those really, really good spots kind of stopped being good. They'd still be good at some times, but I started looking for secondary and tertiary tertiary stats. I know Jordan, I think, touched on it a little bit ago as I was listening. I started doing that this year and and really using my side image. And I was going back into these little areas that I just never touched my entire life. And I would find good weeds. I would find rocks that I didn't even know existed. I'd find some wood. And then, you know, I was, you know, hopefully targeting some muskies that don't see as much pressure from other baits. And that's kind of how I was staying away. You know, I was still using the same baits. I was just trying to do something a little bit differently. And then, and then if I see somebody running a weed line or if I run a weed line for a few, few spots, I will, I will switch it up. That's when I I go either extreme on the inside or I do the one cast length out approximately. And that usually gets me back on track if they're not going on the, on the basic weed lines. So all right, now we had one question pop up here on Facebook Live, and then I know you wanted to get one more in there yet, so we'll do that before we wrap up. Also, let's talk about deer hair versus synthetic. So I'm assuming flash, like positives, negatives. I don't know if we need to catch everybody on here necessarily. I think some of it will get a little bit redundant, but, you know, Gus, you got it in there. What, do, you, do you use deer hair over flash, and when might you choose one over the other? What's the what's the benefits and drawbacks? I, I, I do, and even going back to pressured water. I use, I got this double eight bucktail. That's all deer hair. It's got the most narrow profile. It's just like a rabid squirrel. I actually use some, I think it's a rabid, yeah, rabid squirrel, a single eight rabid squirrel is another good one. I really like the low profile of that. I found that to be really key in some situations. I think flash is great. And I think it's great for intriguing big fish and it moves a lot, but I think deer hairs were to go to be a little more subtle. I don't know. That's because it's not going to flash at all. So I don't know. I've mixed it up. I've I've usually mainly just used natural colored deer hair, black, brown, yellow, orange, and that's about it. That's that's pretty much when I use it. Probably the, I'll make this quick. I'm probably the wrong guy to ask because I just started working with deer hair last year, like actually really working and trying to see the benefits of it. And I think where Gus, I do like that, where I see a lot of, you get fish to move on flashable or, you know, the flashy stuff and they come up and they look at it. It just seems like I got a lot more fish to eat in the eight on, on deer hair. And I couldn't, exp- I don't know why. I don't know why that was. And it was actually like in October. So I, I honestly, I'm probably the wrong person to ask, but I have seen where fish, I don't know what they want, but they, they come in and they attack that right at the boat for me. Yeah, Jeff, I definitely want you to answer this because you're a big fan of the rabbit squirrel. And like, so I know you definitely use it, but you also catch fish on other, other flash baits too. Like what's the magic of the rabbit squirrel? Cause I've said it on the podcast a million times. It looks like nothing in the water. <laughs> yeah. The profile on the rabbit squirrel, especially once it gets wet. I actually don't use a lot of deer hair. It's probably been two or three years since I've even thrown deer hair. I'm either throwing the, the flashaboo or the rabbit squirrels. I and mean, I'm a huge fan of the single bladed rabbit squirrels. Actually earlier in the season when the water is really, really clear, the fish can just seem to shy away from the flashaboo for me. And this the uh, rabbit squirrels, just with that small profile, you just scream them through the water so fast. And in that clear water, those fish are just aren't doing lazy follows. They're screaming up and eating those rabbit squirrels. I, I don't know what it is about them. Because that, that squirrel hair, you don't even really see it moving in the water. You see the blades moving, but there's just something about it that, that baits magic. If I'm getting a lot of follows on flash, I'll pull those rabbit squirrels out and go back after them with that. And and that converts a lot of lazy fish into fish that eat. It's just a top producing bait for me. All right. One more question. All right. Let's wrap it up with one more question. So a few years ago, like two, I found myself accidentally fishing the same lake that the PMTT was fishing on a Friday. And when I pulled into the launch and I saw how full the parking lot was, I thought, man, the guys around here are really serious about musky fishing in September. Well, still not knowing what was going on, I went onto the lake and I politely found myself in between two other boats, gave enough space, 
and did my thing. What I noticed blew me away. Like, wow, these guys really know what they're doing. The way they handled their boats, the way they worked the rods, how fast they retrieved and cast it back out. The time between your figure eight and the bait hitting the water again was like, and I picked up a lot from just watching those guys fish. So you hear a lot of things through podcasts and articles about moving your boat slow, saturation casting, or covering water quickly, working a bait fast, working a bait slow. There's just something about some guys that makes them real fishy. And everybody fishing that lake that day was real fishy. So I've also been fishing with some fishing guides that have really given me some good pointers on just basic figure eights and how to direct your casts, kind of the basics. What have you found with, if you're willing to share, what have you found by fishing with other guys that are at your level or higher that have helped you to become a better angler or things that you use on like a every day on the water basis that help you to be a better fisherman or get those those fish that do follow to convert or get those fish that don't follow to just eat it? Well, that's a great question. <clears throat> I guess being a tournament angler and Friday, if you were out there on Friday, most people, hopefully if they're smart, I'm not really smart. So I probably was maybe still trying to catch fish, but cover a ton of water. But I think most people that were still fishing that day were going extremely fast, covering as much water as possible, trying to find a hot fish to go back on the next day. And maybe you saw them pull out real quick and cast again immediately. They might have been pulling out on fish that they had followed. They didn't want anybody else knowing about it. And typically, I think that's probably what most people are doing. As far as getting fish to commit and you know, reading the fish, I suppose... And when we're, we're hunting, when we're hunting for active fish, we're running baits that we can run fast bucktails. If we're running twitch baits, we're cranking, you know, ripping them in typically not dive rise or top water. Personally in my boat, you know, our team is not a lot of rubber and we're blasting it and we're looking for a reaction and we're looking for those really hungry fish and trying to figure out what their attitude is. And if we can move them doing that, we got a good chance of going back and catching these fish, you know, come tournament time and getting them to commit. One thing I see with quite a few people, well, not necessarily quite a few people, but if you're not, you know, out there every day is reading fish's attitude. And if you're burning a bucktail in and you go into your figure eight, don't slow down. By all means, keep up the cat and mouse game. Keep your speed up. If they're not eating right away in that first turn, it's so crucial to go really fast in that first turn. Go all the way through figure eights with speed, then maybe start changing up your speed to get them to commit. I'll throw that outside turn on my second figure eight and hang it oftentimes. And a lot of times those chasing fish will try and eat out there and you can pull the rod back in or cross it over their head. Key is to get those fish to eat when you want them to eat and try and keep it away from them when you don't want them to eat because there's times right down deep both side where you don't have a whole lot of leverage you know, you can't get that rod to bend and they eat down there. You know, I'm trying to keep the bait away from the fish at that time. I want them to eat in certain spots where I have a good hookup. I'm sure there's more I can add to that, but we'll let somebody else add to that. Yeah. If you by chance saw me out there the day before a tournament, you might think I'm about the laziest fisherman ever. I don't work super hard on the day before the tournament. I don't like to burn fish and I'm usually fishing the most random areas sometimes. And then the day of the tournament, I think what you're seeing, unless you might have been out there on the day of the tournament now that I'm... Okay. Oh, that's right. So yeah, if you're out there day one, it just pretty much flips the switch. All those guys out there go to high efficiency. I mean, the bait out of the water, it's zinging right there. I mean, one thing I'd say, touching on that, as I manage the boat with the trolling motor, you know, I'd rather, instead of just taking a random cast and maybe getting a little bit blown off the spot, I'd rather take a little bit extra time to make sure the boat's where I want and then keep the casts going where I want them because that's a little bit more important than just kind of flailing and bomb casting because I'm pretty art articulate on spots and tournaments. I fish them extremely slow. I fish them two, three, four times. Uh, I go I repeat spots. I do that heavily a lot. I think you had a question there also. It's like, how do you learn from watching other people? 
I'd say, and I know Clayton would second on this, you know, because we fish in a Tuesday night league together. We we will watch each other work baits completely different and somebody will have success and somebody won't. So I would say watching how people work baits is extremely important. If you're, you know, you got the boat thing all good, if they're out there throwing a bait that you like to throw, watch how they're working it, seeing what they're doing with it. They're they're usually doing it for a reason, especially if you're seeing them out during the tournament. You know, they're not they're not there messing around. They're trying to catch fish. So I think your question was, how do you learn from other people or, you know, stuff of that nature? So I would say it's fishing with people. I fished with other guides that had been guiding for years that I looked up to, watched on television. When I finally got in the boat with them, I think what blew me away was <clears throat> how extreme attention to detail they get. The guys that are on the water every single day, like we're in the boat talking back and forth on why was that fish there? Why was it set up the way? Was it set up like this? Was it set up like that? What if we come in from this way? The wind's blowing like this. And I think that's what I learned from them was, okay, we moved it. Why did we move it? Why was the fish there? So we start running through this whole questionnaire. Why was, and then all of a sudden you might get to something like, okay, well, let's go try that over here. And then it happens again. Now you might have a pattern. And I think if you don't run through the little things on the checklist, you might see fish over and over like a follow and it comes up from right below you. Okay. Well, and if that happens again, you're fishing too close. That fish is probably right below you. Right. Or it may be not, but you have to pay attention to like the most minute details. If you land a bait over there and then a fish boils, like, you know what I mean? It's just, there's a lot of different things you have to pay attention to. What kind of grass are you fishing? What kind of weeds are you fishing? You know, is it a mixture? Does it have stuff on the weeds? Is it clean weeds? I mean, it gets so, you have to run through the most minute little details. And I think tournament fishermen, we do that. You're there for seven days a week. You guide all week before that. You're already paying attention to that. So they're right. You go to tournaments, you find your fish, you don't want to burn them. But they're also looking, we're also looking for every spot on the lake that mimics that spot. And then we're going to go break it down every day and, that, and then let them sit. And hopefully they're there when the tournament comes. All right, Elide, one more question that we had on the screen on Facebook. And I, I oh. apologize for people watching on Facebook. If you're listening to the podcast now, it wasn't necessarily set up to have the best audio on Facebook. We just kind of put it out there hoping that it would work out. And so we maybe try to correct that in the future. If not, we just want to do Facebook lives on, on podcast days. So... Wood versus rubber, when do you decide to use one or the other? Because they're very popular presentations in the fall. Let's talk about what's the decision-making process there. Where the, first, where the fish set up, if they're deep off an edge and we got a real, a real like fishy day, I'm going to work a bulldog off an edge. I'm going to not let it drop real far. But if I get, and it's like a warm day, the bite's on, I'm going to work a bulldog real fast. I'm not going to like really let it, I don't know. I'm not going to let it fall and sit for too long. I want to keep it erratic. If I get a cold front situation and we get like a 20 degree flip overnight, I'm going to throw on a suic. Is that what you're talking about? Wood and rubber? Yeah. And I'm going to go throw on a suic and literally hit it, let it sit. And just because it seems like them, they're low and, the, and you want to be real slow and methodical. And I'm not real good at working a suic. These guys are probably a lot better at it. But I think that's when I would do it. When the bite's on, it's a good bite. Fish are moving. I'm going to work a rubber bait. And I love rubber. I'm about nine, you know, 80, 90% of the time, one of us in the boat is throwing a rubber bait. But I'm just starting to get into that suic deal on weighting them down and getting them down deep. I throw a ton of bar fighters. So that's my bait of choice because I can crack, I can get them down to 12 feet and they'll stay at 12 feet and they'll shimmy sideways. So that's kind of, they don't rise real fast. That's what I would do. But big cold front situations is when I flip to wood. So this was about late fall or just fall, right? Okay. So I'd say with the rubber versus wood, man, I, I'd probably, you know, ideally if, if there's two people in the boat, I'd have somebody throwing one or the other more times than not. I usually have two, you know, both people throwing rubber and kind of varying from there. I think that would probably get the more active fish because the head drops on rubber because if you, you know, you don't reel a, a rubber bait, it's going to sink. Whereas a wood bait, I think where it comes into play, like Jordan was talking about with the cold fronts, the nasty cold fronts, you know, so, well, sometimes in late fall, nasty cold front can fire them up. But if the fish, let's just say they're being finicky, despite the weather, I would probably stick to wood because with like a mega bar fighter, a suic, any of those like, or even crankbaits, you can add hooks to them, any wooden bait that you can add enough weight to make neutral buoyancy or a slow rise. I think that's where they become deadly and different than rubber baits. 
And that's where I'm going to, and, and typically, I mean, there's some of the suics and other baits you can get and count down pretty deep, but I would say more times than not wood in a little bit shallower water. If you're still have great green weeds late into the fall and then rubber bait for a little more active fish and deeper fish is how I'd maybe simplify it. All right. Yeah. They covered it pretty well, I guess for, for me, Probably going to start with rubber because I enjoy throwing rubber more than wood. And again, it's fish's attitude. You know, if you can get fish coming in on rubber, I mean, a lot of times following fish on rubber is a bad sign and I'll switch to more wood maybe. The best case scenario, having multiple people in the boat and somebody's throwing one of each, I suppose would probably be the best thing. But with the dive rise or with wood, what Gus said I think is super important is that neutral buoyancy to weight it so that it doesn't float up super fast because you want that death pause. Those lazier fish, I think you get them interested by ripping. And then when that bait sits there as an easy meal, typically when the water is really starting to drop the water temp, those fish get lazier. They want an easy meal. They want to eat once and be done for a while and then conserve their energy. In my opinion, that's kind of the route that I'm going. All right. Well, I think that concludes our question and answer section session of backlash podcast this week brad you want to grab a microphone quick we'll wrap this one up want to thank everybody for taking time clayton gus jordan jeff when he was here you know we really do appreciate it these roundtables would be nothing without having great guides that come on and help us out with that want to thank everybody for the support of backlash podcast continually you know it's been it's been a wild ride brad and you know here we are just i don't know what are we what are we at episode 260 58 something like that I mean, it's crazy. I didn't necessarily think we'd be at 258 when we first started at number one. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. I mean, it has been a wild ride, and, and I love it. I look forward to doing it every week, and and it's because of the people that we get to interview, and we get into some really cool conversations, and nothing like it. And I think as long as people are going to support us with it, we're going to keep going after it. Yeah. I want to also thank you guys in attendance, because otherwise I'd have to come up with questions, and we all know that I'm not the smartest guy when it comes to that, so, you know. <laughs> Thank you also for coming out. We really appreciate that. And to our listeners, you know, we'll be back with an episode of Backlash Podcast in the studio next week, Wednesday. And then don't forget, we'll be doing this again in Minnesota again in, I don't know, what would that be, like two weeks, roughly, three two weeks? Two and a half, three weeks, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So we'll be doing this live again in Minnesota. If you don't want to come out and see us, shoot us a message. We'll try to answer your questions. You know, Brad prefers text messages at midnight, so we'll go down that road. That but, works. You know, thanks again for everybody for their support of Team Rhino Outdoors, Muskie Mayhem Tackle. We'll be back with a new episode again next week, Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs>